Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Two Foundations. Curtis. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful again to see everyone on this nice, toasty Sabbath day. As you heard and as you are reading up on the screen, if you're looking at your bulletin and you're looking at the screen and you're like, what, what's the, am I going crazy? You're not. Uh, there was a little bit of a mistake on my part uh, whenever I sent the title in of my message. I sent in to Sherry the, the two paths. I don't know why I wrote the two paths, but it was always originally supposed to be the two foundations. Uh, so that is actually the title of today's message. And so recently, I've been speaking quite a bit, uh, specifically in the, the book of Matthew, the, Matthew's Gospel, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the, Mount the, the last few messages that I gave. Uh, the first one was over Matthew 7, verses, uh, I believe it was 18 to 23, somewhere around there. But it was about Jesus and whenever he talked about the treasures of heaven uh, versus the treasures of the earth. You know, not you know, uh, storing up treasures on this earth, but rather treasures into heaven. And then last week, we talked about worrying and what Jesus had to say about worrying and about being anxious. And so since I also spoke today, I decided that I would just kind of, this has kind of been somewhat of an impromptu little series that I've done here in the later part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but I just thought I would conclude with Jesus' last sayings here on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting because if we look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, especially the later part, you know, Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what we typically constitute the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you won't find that language in the New Testament or in the, in the Gospels or here in Matthew 5, 6, or 7, but that's just typically what we call this little string of passages because Jesus is on a mountaintop and he's speaking and he's, he's talking to the people and he's challenging their assumptions about the way that they think about things. And oftentimes in this section of scripture, we see that Jesus presents things in two. He presents two ways of life, two gates, two types of prophets and teachings, and, and what's relevant for us today, two foundations. And so I just want to read these, this last little, it's kind of like a parable here in Matthew, the seventh chapter, picking up in verse 30, or 24, rather. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so Jesus gives us two options here. After everything that he says, he says, you know what, all of these, these things that I, I'm saying to you comes down to this. A foolish man and a wise man. And he uses a carpentry, he uses a building analogy to get his point across, to conclude his point. And that is the point of where you lay your foundation. 
And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say the one who builds his foundation on a rock, but he says the one who builds their foundation on the rock. And we know that rock that Jesus is specifically talking about is himself, the rock of himself. All throughout the Bible, we see God Almighty be referred to as a rock. In the wilderness, throughout the prophets, all throughout the Psalms, we even see in Matthew the... the uh, the 16th chapter that Jesus will eventually identify himself as that rock. And so that's the question we're going to ask ourselves today. Are we building, like the song says, on that solid rock? That rock that's Christ. Where is our foundation in this life? That's the question I want us to, to ask as we look at Jesus' words. Last week we read 1 Corinthians the 10th chapter, very few, uh, first few verses there. And we see that the Apostle Paul tells us that the Israelites, the children of Israel, they were led by that rock. And many times, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but those things were written down for us, for us to learn from. And so we're going to look at a little bit of a different story today. Not the Israelites in the wilderness, but a little bit later, but I want us to, to keep one thing in mind. As we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's some interesting little, I guess we could say, implications for it. Because Jesus doesn't just come and say, hey, I, you, know, you do this, do this, do this, do this. He, he does tell us what we need to do. He does tell us you know, the proper way of thinking about stuff. But oftentimes, he's addressing people's assumption. You have heard that it was said, do this in such and such manner, in this way, but I tell you, that's not the case. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Several times, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus addressing people's assumptions. And one of the assumptions is, is that people are walking around in this life, especially in his day, and they're thinking that they're living in righteousness. They think that they're on the right path. They think that they're doing things the proper way. Because maybe the religious establishment has told them that's the way that you should do it. That's the way it's always been done. But Jesus comes to challenge that. And so he's talking to a group of people, and I think we all can identify with this in our own setting. He's talking to a group of people that assume that they do things right. But really, in reality, Jesus exposes their error and shows why they might not necessarily be on the right track. So we see that Jesus... If we look at this in the same way, we look at this, this idea of building on a foundation, a foundation of the rock or a foundation that is made of sand. We can see and we can assume and we can probably even think of examples in our own life where there are people that think maybe their foundation is solid and that they're building on the solid rock, but really in reality, they are building on sand. And so in looking at this, I want us to go and look at a little story from Old Testament Israel. And it's a story that we're all really familiar with, like many of the stories. And I want to, just as we do this, we kind of need to have a little crash course history lesson on the nation of Israel. We know that they're in Egypt. They leave Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually they enter into the promised land. And so the very last period of Israel's pre-monarchy era... Because we know that eventually there's going to be a king that's established in Israel. Because once Israel enters into the promised land, there's no king. 
Well, there's God that was supposed to be their king. But there's no physical king that's reigning and ruling here in Israel. And so the very last part of the pre-monarchy period, there was kind of this cycle that Israel would go through. Okay? Because Israel would go into the, uh, into the promised land, and there was no king, but rather God provided them with judges. You know, individuals that he would inspire as prophets or judges that would judge over Israel. Israel wasn't this super united uh, kingdom that we will find later, but rather they're kind of like a confederate of states, of different tribes that are together. But essentially, this was the cycle. Israel would fall into apostasy. They would start falling away from God's statutes and commandments. They would start going after the other nations and, and, and their culture and their religious practices. Israel would then be chastised. would be chastised by God by means of military defeat. God would bring their enemies upon them. And what would they do? They would repent. After repenting, God would restore them by raising up a judge. A judge that would come and help drive out their enemies and restore them back to the, the peace uh, that they had before all of this began. After this, a little while would go on. Maybe they would stay strong for a little bit, but eventually they would fall into apostasy again. We know that the very end of the book of Judges, this is what's read in Judges 21, verse 10. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we've all read this passage before. It's, it's, it, it, it almost it, it echoes throughout generations of world history. This is like the human condition. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And so at the very end of this era, the very end of this period, the supreme monarchy before a king, you had this guy by the name of Samuel. Samuel, of course, will be a part of the monarchy, the very beginning of the monarchy period. But there's this little story where Israel's dealing with one of their most fiercest enemy, the Philistines. And it happens in 1 Samuel, the, the fourth chapter, where there's this battle with the Philistines, and it's not a successful battle for the Israelites. And so in verse 1 of 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, this is what we read. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And so right here, there's no king. Samuel, he is kind of a prophet. You have a high priest, obviously, and Eli and his sons are his servants. And so the Israelites are sitting around, they're thinking to themselves, well, what in the world, what has happened? Why did we lose? You know, something has went wrong. And so the elders of Israel, they devise this plan up. They, just, they say to themselves, you know what? How about we bring the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with us. Maybe that's what's wrong. Maybe we need God among us in the middle, and that's what's going to be the solution to us being successful. So in 1 Samuel 
chapter 4, verse 3, it says, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now here's an interesting little point that we need to point out here. If you read this story, there is some absences. There are some things that are not present that should be. There's no repentance. There's no discussion of turning to God and asking for advice or for help. There seems to even be somewhat of a false sense of security just by means of bringing out, hey, you know what, this is a physical problem. We, you know, we, we haven't figured out the right you know, formula to get God out there to help us out. And so that's what we see the Israelites. They're looking to try to get help in physical ways. They're looking at this in a purely political way. But to the Philistines, when we read this story, they take it serious. They look at this Ark of the Covenant. This is the people of Israel. They've heard about the stories about how God had delivered them from the hands of the mighty Egyptians. And it made them just fight just that much more harder. And so let's... Just think about this. Israel has been defeated by the, Israel, by the Philistines. They don't know what's going on. They try to figure out what has happened, what has caused them to have this defeat. So they decide to bring out the Ark of the Covenant, and in their minds, maybe this will be the solution. Unfortunately for the Israelites, the second battle, the results of the second battle, is not going to be any better, but it's going to be worse than the first battle the Philistines actually steal this Ark of the Covenant. Now, we might not think that that's a very big deal. You know, we live in 21st century world. It's 2018. We don't have quite the connection. We've read the stories. We know about some of the background. But this was a big deal. The actual chief symbol of God's presence among Israel has been stolen and taken captive by the Ark rival of the Israelites. This is a really, really big deal. And as a result, it's a lot worse than the very beginning, the first battle. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel are said to be slaughtered. The two sons of Eli, Israel's high priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the process. And not only that, at learning of Israel's defeat and the Ark of the Covenant being stolen by the Philistines. Whenever Eli heard about this story, about them losing in the Ark of the Covenant, in verse 18 of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, as soon as he mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, the person who came to deliver the news that Israel had been defeated and the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen and taken captured by the Philistines, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. And as a memorial, and as a memorial of this, Ichabod became the name of Eli's daughter-in-law, who was pregnant, for that son that she would bear. Which means the glory has departed from Israel. So this was a low point in Israel's history. The question is, is that they still could not figure out what the problem was. They still could not figure out how they were supposed to get their glory back. So after this, what takes place, of course, there's more to the story. 
eventually the Philistines relinquish the Ark of the Covenant. They start getting cursed, uh, curses placed upon them, and different types of uh, things come upon them. They give back the Ark of the Covenant, but not much has changed in the way that Israel responds. They, they didn't really learn a lot from this lesson, or at least many of them did not. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 through 17, it says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So Samuel's going to become the new judge in this instance here for Israel. Finally, they get somewhat, you know, of some righteous leadership going on. And there was a big problem with Israel's judges before this, because Eli and his sons, they were corrupt. You see, Israel, they had a lot of problems. Not only were they losing battles, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, which is kind of a good indication that maybe your relationship with God's really not very good right now. But their so-called leaders... Not Samuel, but Eli and his two sons before this. They were corrupt. They were like corrupt politicians. Let's just think about that and look at that in the analogy today. They took bribes. They perverted justice. And, you know, these individuals that are supposed to be not just high priests in this case, but also judging over Israel, they're supposed to make decisions upon righteousness and what should be. And in their perversion, they did things monetary gain. They did things to help themselves out, not necessarily, you know, the nation of Israel. At this point, the last thing that Israel needs is another corrupt leader. But Samuel wasn't good enough for him. Samuel wasn't good enough for him. And in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, in verse 4 and 5, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Look at Samuel. He's had a great tenure here in the nation of Israel, but he's getting old. In their mind, they don't want Samuel to die. It's kind of understandable to some extent. They don't want Samuel to die and for them to be left with no one to judge over them. His sons obviously are not following in his footsteps. His sons are corrupt. And they're at the risk of losing leadership, righteous leadership, and nobody left to go before them and to give them the word of the Lord. But they also want conformity. Because in their minds and in this day, and I think that this is a great example of how sometimes we can misplace our trust, they want conformity to the rest of the world. They see everyone else, all these other nations that are so powerful and great, they all have kings that go before them and are strong. We want that too. We want that too. Samuel takes this as a rejection. Samuel takes this as a rejection, but God assures him that it's not a rejection to himself, but it's a rejection of God himself. Because in Exodus 23, verse 23, we see that when Israel first came into a covenant relationship with God, that they were to rely on God as their king, as the one that went before them. Not physical human beings, 
Exodus 23, verse 23 says, I will go before you and behind to destroy Israel's enemies. We read in Deuteronomy, the 33rd chapter, in the first few verses, that God is called King, who has established His covenant with His people. And in fact, historians have actually looked at this and looked at the covenant language that was drawn out in the Torah, or the first few books of the Bible, like Deuteronomy and Exodus and all those different books, and they looked at the language And it demonstrates that in this covenant that the people were agreeing to allow God to be their king. That they were going into a relationship with God and looking to God to be their king. That's where we understand that that, political terminology, a theocracy. A theos is the Greek word for God. God ruled. God led. Now, in my opinion... This is just my opinion. To some extent, it's understandable why Israel wanted to have a king. They wanted to have someone that was maybe, if you think about what kings do, you know, here you have, in one way, you can say, well, God, you should trust God, and God will put the right person in in charge. He will appoint the right ruler or the right judge, and you should just be in continual reliance on God, and that's completely true. But Israel, some of these people, might like the idea of there being some consistency. You know, you have someone who rules, and then after them, they have an heir that takes over for them. Now, we know that that doesn't always work out very well, as we can see from the biblical example. We even know that there's, you know, evidence in the uh, Deuteronomy, for example, that there would be a king at some point, and that, you know... Judah is going to be eventually in prophecy identified as the one who holds the scepter or the royal throne. And we know that that has come on down the line through what we learn about Jesus Christ and him being from the seed or a son of David. But the problem was the attitude, the attitude of the Israelites. In their minds, God's current plan of protection was not enough. And not only this, we see that their actual looking to a human king, they wanted to be like the other nations and rely on someone human. 1 Samuel 8, verse 20, it says, No, but we want a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They believed that the problem was political when it was really spiritual. And this is so much of what Jesus is getting to when he's on his Sermon on the Mount. He's challenging people's assumptions who believe one thing or look to the physical aspects of things, but the problem is not necessarily everything that they do, but they don't understand spiritually the intent of why they do something or how they should do something. So, in a nutshell, what we see here in the nation of Israel is that they seem to be under the assumption that they are doing things right. Yeah, they have a corrupt high priest, and his sons are corrupt. Maybe those, aren't, you know, those individuals aren't doing the things right. But they're calling upon the name of God. They believe in the Ark of the Covenant. They believe that the Ark of the Covenant has powers, and that they can even bring it to the battlefield. And it could be something that solves their problems. They misidentified the problem, thinking that the solution 
was political and did not realize that the real solution was spiritual. Israel thought it was a political problem. They didn't have a king. They didn't have someone that went before them. But rather, it was a spiritual problem. It's interesting because in some ways, the Israelites are not just wanting to have a king like other nations, but they're kind of taking on the attitudes of other nations even before they have a king. I mean, let's just think about this. They bring out the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, thinking that somehow this would summon God's powers among them. There's an individual by the name of uh, Del Ralph Davis who wrote a book, Looking on the Heart, and he called this rabbit foot theology. Anyone ever remember those old rabbit foots that people used to have? They're like good luck charms. You know, they'd be on keychains and things like that. I remember when I, when I was a kid. I haven't seen them in years and years. Uh, but he called this rabbit foot theology because in, in, in his mind, the way that he's, he's talking about Israel, and I kind of agree with his assessment on this, Israel was looking at the Ark of the Covenant as being like, like a, a good luck charm. And so many of the other nations, like the Philistines themselves, they would have what would they, they would make, you know, they would take their idols with them to battle, and in their minds, that idol would bring powers to them, would be among them. And so they're doing the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant that many of the pagan nations would do with their idols. As we already mentioned, though, the solution was right before them. God doesn't care about all those things about, you know, did you, did you pick up? I mean, we know that he does care specifically when we look at, you know, the instructions that he gave in building the tabernacle and handling the Ark of the Covenant. Don't get me wrong. But we also know from scriptures that God's not so much worried about the physical. He is worried about the physical, but the physical means nothing if the spiritual, if the internal isn't right. There's no mention of repentance there's no mention of seeking God in prayer. And in fact, at the end of the story, the reason I believe that Israel really didn't learn their lesson in this whole ordeal is because when you read in 1 Samuel verse 7, 3-4, when Samuel took over to be the prophet, we read, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and their asterisks and serve the Lord only. Wow. After all of this, they're still engaging in pagan worship. They, they have all, you know, you know, bells and they have asterisks, these different idols around them. I want us to ask this question. We probably, us individually, don't have like, you know, physical pieces of wood or metal made up to another god at home that we worship and maybe we bring that out in secret. Oh, I kind of got a, a, you know, an asterisk in my backyard or anything like that. Those are probably not the struggles that me and you have today. Let's think about that. Spiritually, we can have some bells in our life, some asterisks in our life, some things that we, you know, we want to follow God. We want to you know, put everything away and completely rely on him. But maybe there are some things that we kind of hold on to and we have a hard time relinquishing. 
And so right here we see that Israel's problem is, is that they continually misidentified the issue. They think it's completely political. Oh, we lost in battles because we, we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant out there. Oh, we lost in battles because you know, we didn't do some sort of physical aspect correctly. When in reality, God was upset with Israel because of what was right in here. Their heart was not right. Their heart was not right. So going back to that analogy of Jesus and Matthew, the seventh chapter, it is interesting to see how the Israelites' problem did not shine through just immediately. You see, we've went over so many different times about Jesus and God being our rock, being our foundation. The difficult part is, is that it's difficult to tell if that's the case. Let's just think about this. We see Jesus in the seventh chapter when he's, when, he's, when he's talking about this analogy. He's using uh, the analogy of building something on two different foundations. One on the rock and one on sand. I'm not much of a carpenter. I don't have a ton of experience in building. I have a little bit. Uh, nothing professional. Just a little bit whenever I was a teenager helping out my Uncle Tommy. Chantel's father. That's about the extent I have. But what I do have extensive experience at is looking at houses that are being built because I live in a neighborhood that still they're building tons of houses and it seems like every single piece of uh, inch of square inch of anything is, is there's being a house put on it. And I can tell you this much, I have an, an untrained eye in looking at, at, at buildings, at structures. And many of us, I think, can relate to this. And if you look at two different houses or structures built side by side, one with a good foundation and one with a strong foundation, if you're an inspector, you're going to understand quickly which one's the strong one and which one's the faulty one. But if you're just someone like me, you look at both of them, you're going to say, no, they look the same. They both look sturdy. There's no difference in between the two. Until the environment starts being applied to that, those two structures. Until the winds start blowing. Until the rain starts coming. Until hell comes. And storms and tornadoes and things like that. That's when you see the difference in the two foundations. That's when you see the difference. The interesting thing is that Jesus says the key is this. The one who hears and does. That's the difference. The doers and the hearers. Obviously, you have to be a hearer. To be a doer, you have to do both. But Jesus says that there are some who hear my words and do not do them. And those people are like building a house on a foundation of sand. And so as we conclude in looking at this, I'd like for us just to think on Jesus' words in this section of Scripture. I didn't intend to be, for this to be kind of a mini-series on the last part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But obviously one of the biggest things that Jesus does in this part of the Scriptures is to compare and contrast the assumptions of the day on what constitutes God's will and God's righteousness and what right religion looks like with that of God's true intent of his ways and laws. One of the things that Jesus does here is to challenge common assumptions. So as we are here reflecting on our own lives, I want us to challenge ourselves. I want us to challenge our own assumptions. Are we truly building on the foundation that is the rock? 
that is Jesus Christ? How do we know? What will happen when the weather of life is applied to that foundation and to that house that we're building, which is our life? 